everyone, and welcome to Brady's Corner. I'm Brady. This is my corner. We have a phenomenal guest I can't wait to introduce you to today, James Benham. He is CEO of JB Knowledge, amongst other companies as well. James, welcome, and please do introduce yourself. Glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, greetings from College Station, Texas. Uh, James Benham, CEO of JB Knowledge, Terra, and Smart Compliance. It's three uh, insurance technology companies that co-founded and, and run. Um, good to be on your your corner uh, and uh, and chat about business. Yeah. Absolutely, James. And I was I was thinking last night um, when you and I, you know, first uh, first personally met, and I think it was uh, 2016 San Antonio at the CFNS conference. And yeah, uh, good times. Well, we're both Texas guys, so uh, that's a that's, that's right. And in fact, you know, I remember we we had a conversation. What was we were drinking a particular beer. Um, the road goes on forever and the party never party ends. Never ends. Who, what beer was that and who, who wrote that song? Well, most importantly, that's a Robert Alkeen song. Uh, and uh, it's one that I sing and play guitar to, too, by the way, because I, I, I enjoy that one. And uh, he uh, he's an Aggie. He and Lyle Lovett were roommates back in college at A&M. And so they they both wrote uh, a bunch of great songs. That's probably one of the best one in every Aggie's favorite song. And so I don't remember the beer, but it was probably Shiner Bach if it was in San Antonio and we were thinking about Texas. But uh, it was actually, you. it might've been a license play, but it was uh, Robert, Robert Earl Keane beer. So, but I, Jeez. I don't know if he actually made his own beer or what. Um, nice. I, it, it wasn't anything that I, I remember <laughs> distinctly the taste of or anything. But uh, James, you've got a lot of exciting things going on in addition to having, geez, how many employees? I was going to say hundreds, but I think you have about 200 employees. 270, yeah. 270. Um, in addition to, um, you know, having that stewardship and um, running three different companies and brands, um, you, you've written a book recently. Um, first one that I know of, and um, it's, it's really profound. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. It's called Be Your Own VC. And it's all about how to how to bootstrap a business instead of going out and raising money. Uh, it's also how to bootstrap innovation in existing companies and, and how to encourage um, companies that have already received an investment to, to pivot their model to a capital efficient bootstrapping profitability model um, from, a, from a growth at all cost fundraising model. So it kind of targets those three groups of people who want to start a business or entrepreneurs who are at an existing business or uh, venture capitalists or private equity folks who are trying to get their their investments to be capital efficient. Uh, the, the whole goal was to relay the, the, set, the set of, and I, I boiled it down to 10, but there's obviously more lessons than that, of, um, you know, basic bootstrapping principles to help people to, to you know, eat what they uh, eat, what they kill, so to say, and uh, generate cash that can fund their innovation, whether it's at a big company or a startup. That's what we did at our company. We, we, we started this whole thing off of a few thousand bucks and, and uh, turned it into something really cool and had you know, built, a, built a product company uh, and, and then sold it and then kept the main service business, started two new product companies and, and did it all with our, um, with our own profits from our own services. So it's, it's been a fun ride and, and I thought it was a, a discussion worth having in the in the broader business community. And to me, the thing that really hits home about it is, 
you know, I ask, I ask myself when, when I start reading some of that is what, what other way is there, you know, and, and I think it has to do a lot with probably how you and I were raised, you know, you, you have to make do with what you got. And, and, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the model, right. And, and making a little bit more profit. It, talk about a little bit. There's, there's the VC model, the old, the traditional VC model you talked about. What happens in that model when people get a little bit of money? What do they go and do with it? Well, I think the, and, and full disclosure, I'm a limited partner at venture capital and private equity funds. And so I, I just encourage my investments to be very capital efficient. But the, uh, the, the unfortunately prevailing, prevailing theory is, is a growth at all costs philosophy that, that says really ignore profit, uh, ignore cash, uh, cash, you know, burn and grow at all costs, put boost, but growth rate at all costs. Even if you're building a machine that's not fundamentally sound, like the, the, the price is not high enough or the costs aren't low enough and the unit economics don't work. Somehow there's a belief that either they'll achieve that at scale or they'll follow greater fool theory and sell to somebody before they have to prove they can actually, before they can actually generate, uh, you know, profit, profit and cash, you know, and and I, I, I hate to say I'm a little pessimistic on this. I think a lot of West Coast venture capital funding is really centered around greater fool theory that they're. They're just trying to, to sell and then sell and then IPO and then get out before they have to prove it actually makes money. And if you look at a lot of the big IPOs over the last 36 months, you look at the, you look at the bottom line of a lot of those businesses and it's pretty bad. And the, the losses are accelerating, you know, not trimming down. And, and so I think that's why you're seeing so many layoffs right now is that people are trying, but it's really, really hard to write that ship when it wasn't built. The ship wasn't built properly in the first place. If the ship's not built to float, there's only so fast you can bail water out of it, you know? And, and that's, the, that's the kind of the fundamental uh, for me about, about bootstrapping, about being your own VC, about uh, you know, being capital efficient is you're trying to build a, a business that's actually economically sustainable um, rather than one that's going to grow at all costs, but, but depend on someone's largesse really is, is what so many times it happens where a big public company will hopefully acquire this company and bury it in their financials before they have to prove it'll ever make, make any revenue, any profit. Um, it doesn't mean that, that venture capital doesn't produce profitable companies because they do, mm-hmm. but, but they, they so often have, have issues. And so that's been the, uh, the, the main theme of this is, hey, look, you, you know, a lot of discussion out there about raising money, about raising rounds and you know, do a pre-seed, seed A, a extension B, C, D rounds, and then IPO or exit. Uh, hey, what about this really boring traditional model that's a lot more painful and takes a lot more time? You know, called called bootstrapping, and that's that's why I thought it was it's worthy of a book. I I agree a hundred percent, and um, I've I've followed a similar philosophy. I've just called it smart growth. You know, really focusing on. You know, for example, the geographies, the the client customer type that you actually can deal with rather than just try to be everywhere all at once. Um, you also mentioned something else is, you know, under the, like, I don't know if this would be under the greater fool theory uh, that you mentioned, but people behaving in a way that they wouldn't with that money, you know, hiring a bunch of people, spending on things you don't need, 
um, that if you didn't have that venture capital money, you wouldn't be doing that. Um, and so I think that's something to keep in mind as well, especially if you don't have um, the, the benefit of like you and I on our EOS plans of a one and three and 10 year model on uh, mission of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, the, the, even the concept of a 10 year target for a, for a company who's going to try and exit in four to six years is, is, yeah, is, is challenging, right? Because they, mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not the time frame they're thinking in. And if you, if you talk to your typical bootstrapped entrepreneur, they, they're thinking 10, 15, 25 years. Like right now, I've got a, what I like, what I, you know, I, I have my own 25 year goal. And I have my own 15 year goal, my own five year goal. So I'm, I'm at five, 15, 25 personally um, with the, with the businesses. And, and I, that's because you, you can afford to look long because there's no fund horizon. There's no window in which the investors need the money back. And so you have the, uh, you have the, the option of thinking really, really long and building something really impressive. And there, there's been some really, really impressive bootstrap businesses built, but they just don't get nearly as much press. If you look at the amount of press that a, that a non-bootstrap business gets, that a, you know, a VC-funded business gets, they, there's a lot of announcements around fundraising and then a lot of talk around the exit. And the bootstrap business, because they don't have to do any of those announcements, there's, there's not a lot of discussion about all the money they're making, all the profit they're generating. all. The... And so I think the, 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 that's, that's really why it's important for us to talk about this, this thing that's you know, not, not really taught in business school. I mean, I, I did an ebook on the 10 things that I'll teach you in business school because they don't really teach you how to run a business. They teach you the mechanics of business, but, you know, but EOS, taught me business. How to, yeah, yeah, yeah. EOS taught me how to run a business. Business school taught me how to do accounting and finance and marketing and IT, um, you know, some HR and, and some, a little bit of finance, but it didn't teach me the overarching system of running a business. EOS, EOS taught me that. My father taught me that, um, you know, and they, they teach you a lot about leverage and debt and, you know, raising rounds and doing pitch decks and they have pitch competitions. You know, yeah. there, there ain't, there, there ain't a, there ain't a bootstrapping competition out there. So it's, it's a, uh, that's the, that, that's why I think it's worthy of discussion, but it's also worthy. It's a, the apprentice would have been the only thing even similar, right? Like bootstrap. Even, even, yeah, even remotely similar because they were required to come in and work and learn the business and, you know, it was, uh, and earn their way in <laughs> and, and, I mean, what a what a novel concept. It's it's uh, it it's it's real interesting. Well, hey, let me ask you this. Oh, um, you deal in insurance. You deal in um, you work a lot in construction. That's a lot of your your clients is based around that. Um, tell me your thoughts on let's let's break out your crystal ball or let's maybe even magic eight ball. Um, tell me your thoughts in the market right now. Um, interest rates. Um, where we're headed commercially, residentially. Um, what are your thoughts on that and where are you seeing? And the reason I ask is I think, you know, insurance is is probably got kind of the catbird seat, if you will, of of a lot of things going on. And and so what are your thoughts on that? Thoughts on the economy or on, on the insurance? On, on the economy specific, specifically to construction. Well, I because because I built a construction bidding system and spent 12 years in that and you know, uh, spent uh, seven years in construction podcasting and speaking and these tech reports. Uh, I've been able to witness really the birth of contact construction tech and the the birth of this huge innovation effort inside the United States and around the world around construction technology. So 
I remain very optimistic that this very old, very important industry is going to continue to innovate and and um, and dramatically improve how uh, it's how it um, how it gets things done. If you if you zoom out to the broader economy right now, I'm very nervous for for the construction economy, largely because you know construction is generally built with debt, um, and debt is uh, centered around interest rates. And when interest rates double, so when you go from three to six percent to seven to eight, you know that can actually double uh, a uh, an owner's payments. Even though the interest rate's only moving three percentage points, the actual payment itself can double. And so I, I, I think we're going to see backlogs trim down as people don't have their financing and, and rates locked in. I think that it's going to be a, um, you know, a, a more challenging market, as, in particular, as we witness the, the, the real fallout of the office apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, and people just not leasing space for offices and trimming down their office footprints. I'm continuing, you know, in my networks and YPO and EO and all, all the, the CEO networks I'm in, I'm hearing everybody talking about them trim, trimming their office footprints down. I mean, every, everybody, I don't know anybody expanding office space right now. Anybody. I mean, the only people I know that are, that are building stuff is, is universities. You know, universities, higher ed, some you know, primary and secondary high schools, primary and secondary education. I think the education industry will continue to be a bright spot in construction, but um, you know, I think housing is gonna is gonna slow down for real, and uh, I'm I'm very nervous about the commercial office. Somebody was Mario. telling me something about even um, even just looking at Katie ISD, how their bonds are one eighth of all of California high school bonds right now on on what's being built maybe not just high school but uh um, k through 12 in general on on schools and whatnot being built out there just as one example of uh schools and what's being built in that area um what's your thought okay so on residential james specifically we're seeing a lot of build to rent single family rental pedal to the metal on that building um, what's your thoughts on that? What's your thoughts on um, how that's affecting our future culture as Americans? Ooh. Am I allowed to even ask that question? That's a big one. You know, there's a there's a there's a a really challenging thing going on right now in general around the securitization of single family res- residences. <laughs> so, I mean, we're going way off way, way off into the weeds on this, but but. Well, I mentioned that just because the building is going just 90 miles an hour on on the single family build to rent space. Yes. And I'm I'm very nervous around the institutionalization, the the um, uh, the securitization of single family residences really worries me because a big part of what I believe and I spent year I spent years as a planning and zoning commissioner and city councilor. So I, I got to sit on city council meetings and planning and zoning meetings and hear a lot of homeowners and, you know, healthy neighborhoods uh, tend to center around people having a path to ownership, right? Like people having a path to, to, to residential ownership, owning the place they live is a really important part of um, the American dream and uh, what really- And, and their wealth, right? I mean- Yeah, they're, they're, got- they're per- the American dream, their personal wealth and healthy neighborhoods 
center around. Now, it doesn't mean renters are bad. Not at all. Because I was a renter before I was a homeowner, but you should have a path to being able to own your own destiny. Right? And build, build wealth in your house. Build mm -hmm. wealth in your home. And own the place where you live. Now, you could also, we could go on another super tangent that you never actually own the place you live because you pay property tax and the government right. could take this thing from you. And so you're really just renting the land from the government. You don't own it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, we, when, you, when you look at what's going on, though, um, it, is, it is really concerning because you're seeing large, large REITs or large public holding companies going in and buying a lot of single family residents, building single family residences. And then, and then creating uh, a housing shortage, right? They're, they're, in my opinion, they're actually manufacturing a housing shortage by, by soaking up the availability of, of land, lots, and houses, and they're forcing people into being renters. And I, I, look, I'm a free market capitalist, but capitalism depends on healthy, healthy minimal, but healthy regulation. And I think it's, um, I think it, 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 I think it's something that we should all be concerned about because you can't have the mentality that just because I already got mine, I'm not going to worry about the next person. Well, what about the next person and their ability? I mean, first house I bought. What about our kids? What about our kids' kids? What about our kids' friends? I mean, that that's who you have to be worried about. Like my first house was one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So it was very attainable to get in and get a mortgage. Seventy-two thousand. <laughs> yeah, it was very, it was, it was very attainable to get in and get a mortgage and make payments and then pay it off. I paid it, you know, and I, and I, I think the, it was the second house I paid off, got got rid of the mortgage, and I've been a, I've been a, I've been a cash buyer on real estate ever since then, and I did it before I made any real money. I followed Dave Ramsey's debt snowball, and I got out of debt, and then I owned, and there's really no greater feeling than buying, than paying off your house. I mean, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, because you can say, look, we have a lot better control over our destiny. Mm -hmm. And uh, it worries me that people aren't going to have that ability. And, and I know it sounds crazy that I'm saying that the, the housing crisis is a bit manufactured, but I, I have a, I have, when you, when you look at the amount of real estate being purchased and, and controlled and the amount of, of inventory in single family neighborhoods being soaked up by REITs and large investment funds, um, you've got to be, uh, you've got to be really concerned about it. And you got to say, man, this, this is who's going to have the ability to step into the housing market. Yeah. And no, is the counter argument to that is that, well, are they creating more efficiency by soaking up some of these homes as the interest rate rises and these builders aren't able to offload these these new homes they're producing. There may be some of that, I'm guessing, but may, maybe you're saying is just the mass the mass number of homes being acquired by these Wall Street funds um, kind of countervails that that argument a little bit. Yeah, and if you look, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Atlantic, they've all done articles on this in the last 24 months. Um, you know, it, it, you, you go to Brookings Institute, uh, they, they, Brookings did one, where have all the houses gone? Uh, and they said private equity, single family rentals and America's neighborhoods. <laughs> and I mean, you can, you can go through article after article after article. Um, you know, the article in the New York Times was titled a $60 billion housing grab by Wall Street saying that, you know, hundreds of thousands of single family homes are now in the hands of giant companies squeezing renters for revenue and putting American dream even further out of reach. 
that's the title of the article. And, and, and so I think that's, that's something that we've got to really be, be, be wary of um, and, uh, and, and be concerned about. It's a, it's, it, it's not something we can just ignore and turn, turn our back because we've already, because we already own a house. And, you know, that I, I hate to um, do a shameless plug here, but, you know, you you recently uh, contributed to a book that I'm about to publish called The Millionaires You Went to High School With. One of the things in there um, that surprised me, James, when we did some research is that there are 23 million millionaires in the United States. I've got to believe that more than half of those are homeowners in California in huh. New York and Massachusetts, right? Depends on um, it depends depends on how you define a millionaire. Uh, if, if net worth who, of three million or more. Yeah, you know. there you go. Yeah, net and, net of debt. Yeah, and and so that's that's got to be a lot of homeowners and and uh, you know those three states. I'm guessing, um, but you know that said that if if people aren't acquiring homes and acquiring those wealth, we're going to see the number of millionaires diminish drastically over the next twenty years, right? I think so. So much of families uh, of wealth is tied up in their houses. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit about James. One of the things that in 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 my book that I'm trying to to break is the idea that the millionaires out there are really more like you know kind of Scrooge McDuck, right? Or <laughs> um, everybody here. I don't know if anybody here is old enough to remember Ducktales, but. You know, you got Scrooge McDuck over there, or, you know, we might think about Elon Musk or Warren Buffett. Um, I was thinking, actually, when you mentioned your 25-year plan, I was thinking about a, a name for you, the sage of uh, BCS, Bryan College Station. Um, but, you know, we, we think about these outlandish ideas of folks, but there's a lot of people, James, that run plumbing companies, that run construction companies, that run uh, software companies, um, demolition clean up that these folks are absolutely millionaires. They're just not out there flaunting it. And they'd be embarrassed to say that they're millionaires. Yeah. Well, you know, some of the, some of the dirtiest jobs have the, um, some of the dirtiest jobs out there have some of the best pay grades. You know, if you look at, because people are willing to pay a lot of money to, to other people to do a job that they don't want to do. And so it's, I, that's what I always loved about dirty jobs with Mike Rowe is that mm -hmm. so many of the people that he interviewed on that show were very wealthy, but they were doing jobs that nobody wanted to do and getting paid fantastically to do it. Um, now I'm, I'm not in a, I'm not in a, a dirty industry or a difficult, you know, physically difficult industry in software. Um, you know, but, but there are so many really amazing business people that, uh, that have have struck on their own and 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 done well by by doing things that nobody else wanted to do. That that being said, there's also a lot of people who have done well by you know entering heavily crowded markets that everybody does want to be in. Right. You know, so it's there, there's a lot of ways to 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 uh, to peel the orange, so to say, on 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 making money. Um, but but you're right. I mean, there's a there, so so many of them you would you would never have any idea that they've uh, that they've done well and they they'd rather you not rather you not know they don't want the attention so so james what separates these people that went and, and you know they started their business and they were probably solopreneurs to start with and then eventually uh bootstrapped themselves up right um for for most of them some of them ended up you know if they're builders um funding is absolutely required in most cases um 
what do you think separates these folks from, you know, when, you know, from, from other folks that are in the cubicle um, or haven't made that jump yet, or, or maybe never will, what, what do you think's different? No, you know, I think, I think um, everybody is capable mm-hmm. of, of, um, of, of doing almost anything. I, I do have the kind of the unlimited uh, constraint uh, thinking in general, I, I, do, I think that certainly it's extremely stressful, extremely time consuming. Um, there's a lot of sacrifice involved in, in being an entrepreneur um, or, or, you know, in climbing the corporate ladder. I mean, there's, you know, if you, if you want to be aggressive in any career, that I, there's just not a lot of ways to be aggressive in, in a career or a business and not sacrifice something. And so people just make that decision every day, you know, on, on whether they're going to whether they're going to sacrifice, but often decisions are made for them. I think one of the things that you'll see come out of this period of, of large layoffs is a whole bunch of companies get created because the decision is being made for a lot of folks whose jobs are being eliminated. That it's the, it's the push they needed because um, you know, they were, they were comfortable. And then when they get laid off, they, they decide to, instead of going to work, they decide to build a, to build a business. So I think everybody's capable. It's just like, I don't, I don't really believe in the, the, I, the, I haven't studied the data, but this is just a, maybe an anecdotal belief or a heart belief that it's, it's not just extroverts that do well at being professional speakers. It's not just extroverts that do well at selling. I know a lot of introverts and my definition of introvert or extrovert is extroverts get fueled up by social interaction and people and introverts, their battery gets drained. Both of them, both of them can be very good at dealing with people and both of them can be great speakers and great presenters and great salespeople, but extroverts get juiced up. I'm an extrovert. I get juiced up by that interaction. Introverts get, get tapped, right? Their, their battery gets, gets reduced. And so both can be very successful. It just depends on whether or not you want to, are willing to make the sacrifices that, that, it, that it necessitates. And also depends on if you found a good work home or not. I mean, I've got some really, really amazing teammates and something we've worked really, really hard to do. And I know you've done the same thing at your business is to build a place that people um, want to come work at to build a business that they, they enjoy and doesn't take them down. And I think that's, that's a really, really important part of this. And so I don't think there's one archetype or, or one personality type or, you know, I, 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 I think I've seen people who have super high IQs do not very well in business. I've seen people who, you know, are, are not, you know, the, the, the top of the, the IQ charts, just plow, you know, the, the ultra intelligent into the ground on business because they just work so much harder and they've got, they've got so much common sense and not, not as much book sense. And, and so, you, you know, I, that's why I just don't, I don't think there's any one, any one path or any one person. Uh, it certainly is a combination of a lot of hard work, determination, willingness to endure pain for a long period of time. And, um, and then, then some luck, you know, do you meet the right people at the right time? And I, and I say in the book, you know, that rule number four is that, you, you know, the rule, the first rule of business is to survive. If you can survive, then you can hang around long enough to be lucky, you know, so you, you could argue that the longer you're around, the luckier you get, uh, because you can meet more people. Yeah. The, I, I forget who mentioned that recently is it seems like the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah. Who is that? Mm. Um, maybe it was. It's an often re- it's an often referenced quote. I don't remember who originally said it, but it, it's quoted so much because it's true, right? I would say maybe 
maybe we need to revise the quote and say the harder and longer I work, the luckier. Because sometimes it's just you can work the same hard day, but just for a longer period of time, and eventually, eventually you you get lucky. Eventually, you uh, eventually you hit you hit something that works. So I know we don't have that much longer, but I do want to. Um, there's for lack of a better word, James, I think there's so many bullshit artists out there that are just trying to sell a gimmick. Um, if, if I, and you know, for example, uh, take ice showers, wake up at 5 a.m., um, do this, do this, ice bath, you know, all of these things. Um, now, let's talk about that a little bit. Are, are, I mean, I think most successful people that I know, um, they have a routine, but there's not any, as you mentioned, there's I don't think there's a particular routine. I know folks that are making that are worth over $100 million and 7 a.m. is their time to wake up and they're not taking ice baths and whatnot. So (laughs) talk. do you have any any thoughts on that? (laughs) Yeah, look, um, I think that people just get bored with life and are looking for new things to try. And and certainly as we get older, and I've noticed I'm now in the age bracket in my 40s, where a lot of my friends are getting much more concerned about longevity you know, how to be healthier longer um, because they, you're starting to get concerned because things start to break down. You start to need reading glasses like I did last year, or you start to need, uh, you, you start to have ankle injuries, knee injuries. And, and so you're all, you're, and, and your weight, weight management becomes a lot more challenging. Energy management, you know, you, you get, you get a little, little fluffier and you get a little more tired and you look a little crankier and, and then your knees and ankles and hips and elbows and your eyes. I mean, things start to happen you know, about 40 years in. And, and so you start to hear this and see it. And we're in the demographic that's getting targeted in all these ads. And I, it was funny because I saw the, the ice bathing and the, the, the ice shock thing this morning on an ad that was remarketed to me. And uh, look, I don't think any of that stuff is correlated or not to business success. But I do think that personal health is. Yeah. I, I think that if you're not, if you're not healthy, and you don't feel well, it's going to be a lot harder for you to perform <laughs> and, and to, to be creative. And if you're tired all the time, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a challenge. And so I think that we do have to focus on personal health and per, you know, mental and physical well-being. And, and I'll, be, I'll be totally honest. This is something that I, I consistently have to really work at. It's hard. It's hard staying mentally healthy. It's hard, hard staying physically healthy. Um, and it does require that you change your habits up sometimes if something's not working. And, and so I think that's why you see a lot of people try that. I mean, I did CrossFit for seven years, um, tore two ankles and, and got really strong and then got really injured and had to try something else. And, you know, now I do F3, which is a bunch of dudes, a bunch of guys, my age, getting together in a park, working out for free with each other three days a week, volunteer like 5 a.m. Right. Yeah. Five in the morning. We, we get up at five in the morning and go work out together in a public park. No one pays anybody any money. And I'm in just as good shape as when I paid people a ton of money to train me because I have group accountability. And, and so I, that's why, that's what I'm saying. Like I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to focus on things that I can do for a lifetime right now, rather than um, things that are, are going to be, I'm going to go jump in a cold lake every morning and yeah. Then I'm then I'm gonna do some deep heavy breathing. I've seen that where you do the, you know, you do the heavy breathing and stuff. I'm like, man, I, I'm I think I'd just pass out if I did that. I just pass out watching that. Yeah, exactly. I just pass out watching that, or, you know, I I I I'm probably not gonna do that. You know, this morning I got up and went for a two mile run with my dogs, and, you know, I walked part of it and then ran most of it. You know, I I feel I feel good and 
I'm hungry, ready for a good meal. Gonna have some barbecue today for lunch. So, I mean, it's, that's the, you know, I, I think it's hard. It's hard being an absolutist in anything. James, let's, let's talk about a couple of things before we go. Uh, two quick things, um, two important things. And one, one of the most important, let's talk about, um, I, and, and this is something I discovered about you, your, your family time and um, camping with, with your kids um, and, and the time you spend there. Um, and like, I, I was shy. I didn't know you went camping that much. And uh, you know, you know, the number of times you went camping, you, you have it down to a science. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tried to add it up. I, I think it's around 45 or 48 times we've been camping. It's because it's um, most people, when you say, do you go camping? They say, yes. And you say, how often you say once a year. I'm like, well, that's not really going camping that much. I mean, you're not, you know, and then you ask, well, how'd you go camping? Well, I went to cabin or a big RV or something like, okay, well, I mean, we, I, I got fortunate enough that, a, that another dad in town introduced me to, um, to YMCA Indian princesses, which became called YMCA Y guides and princesses which is all about taking dads and, and their kids out in the woods and, and camping once a month, eight times a year. And so I, I did it for, you know, it's about six years and I, I got to, to lead my group for about three years and just took a lot of kids in the woods camping. I took my, you know, my two daughters, my youngest really took to it. We had a great time, spent a lot of time in the woods. Uh, now they, now they prefer to go to universal studios They're they're teenagers now. So they, they have different tastes. Now they want to go to Broadway musicals and universal studios and other things, but um, I spent way too much time on the road for the first years of their life, way too much. And so I've spent the last, um, six years trying to make up for it and, um, you know, spend a lot more time, uh, traveling with them, spending time with them, doing trips with them and, and, uh, doing fun activities around, around town. And, uh, it, it's definitely been worth it. And, and, uh, I don't regret a single minute, even though you, you a lot of bug bites, a lot of mosquito bites, a lot of ants, a lot of you know, a lot of hot nights or cold nights or, you know, being in the tent shivering or getting a heater or the heater goes out or it's a lot of work, you know, cooking for a lot of kids. That's mainly what you do is you cook three times a day for all these kids. It, it's a lot of work, but um, I, I think it was worth it. Um, my kids will say it was worth it. And, um, you know, we, we built a lot of great memories. It's something that no one can ever take from you is your memories. Um, That's the real you know, wealth, the, the yeah, relationships and the memories. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, it's, you can't, you can't take the experiences away from me. I've had some awesome experiences and, and, uh, th those, those stay here and they stay there with my kids too. And James, thank you so much for that. And then, last but not least, um, one of your other passions, your pilot, yeah. um, and, and you're, you're very passionate about that. And, um, you've done everything you've done. Um, you fly for business, you fly for fun, you fly for charity. Um, you've, you've, uh, I, I know you've done missions for, for dogs, um, even and, and pets talk a little bit about that before we go. Yeah. Um, my mom's a pilot, uh, not active anymore. My dad's not an, is a pilot, but not active anymore. They're in their, their eighties now. So, I mean, it's a little bit, a little bit of a different story, but my dad's a 6,000 hour air transport pilot. Mom's a 600 hour multi-engine pilot. My mom's dad was a Navy pilot. Um, uh, he was a sub submarine hunter and an, um, observation, uh, airplane in world war two. And so it kind of runs in the blood. And, um, I started flying when I was 19, but didn't finish my license and, uh, started the business, didn't have any time to do it. And five years ago, I 
got my business smart bid under letter of intent to sell it. And the, the day I, I, I did that on December 7th of 2017, I went down to the air. I told my business partner, I said, you need to finish due diligence. I'm going to the airport. And I went and finished my pilot's license in about three and a half, four months. And um, I've, I've now gotten seven of those. So I have a you know single engine, multi-engine private, then single engine, multi-engine commercial, then single engine seaplane commercial, then a, you know, a, an instrument rating, then a, a CJ type rating. And, and so I, I've, I've really gotten to fly a lot of different things and I've, I've got just under 1500 hours now. And um, in, in, the, in those five years, it's, it is a, a phenomenal hobby. It's a great passion. It's a great skill to have. It teaches you about navigation and weather and about mechanics and and about physics and, and math. I mean, there's just, it's just a, it's like a master's degree having to go through that much. And, um, I, I have, uh, you know, had so many moments of just sheer delight flying. It is really nothing that, that, um, you know, no hobby can really come close to, to that. It's, if you, you just, you know, take family out of it and just look at personal hobbies, nothing can really come close to the delight that that generates, at least for me. Uh, it's also challenged me, you know, the, the seven tests and check rides I had to take were extremely stressful, high pressure. The consequences are serious if you screw up and, um, you know, you, you finish after two or three hours of that, and your, your shirt is soaked, you're exhausted and, uh, it's a great sense of accomplishment. And so that's why I really enjoy flying and it, you know, it, it allows you to do things that you, you can't do otherwise, you know, you can't. Yeah, um, you know, yesterday I did a day trip out to Mississippi and back, and it was an hour each way. And you know, I was home for dinner. I, I left after breakfast, was home for dinner, and it's just it's just not possible to do that um, without flying yourself. Uh, and so it, it's fun. And now I'm a I'm a regent at Texas Southern University, which is a governor's appointment here in Texas. And um, it turned out they I didn't know this, but when they when they appointed me, I found out they had an aviation school at Texas Southern that was really small and and struggling and trying to grow. And and so I've gotten to fuse my passions for politics and service with with flying. And we took that little aviation school from 18 kids to to 56 now wow. and from from two airplanes to seven. And we just had our first two pilots get their commercial ratings and get hired by Southwest Airlines. And they were both both women, and I was just so excited because it's so rare, you know. Women in flying is a very, still a very rare thing, and and minorities in flying is a rare thing. And we had minority females that are going to be, you know, pilots at Southwest Airlines, and came out of our school, and it resulted of the the efforts that we did. Um, that's awesome. And, and so that that's that's what flying is so cool because there's there's a lot of rewards and a lot of stresses and a lot of tests. And it's, it's neat being involved in the aviation community in the, in the small way that I am. And I watched a video you did recently about the applications of that to not only life, but, but to business as well. Um, and that could be the, uh, um, the, the content for an entirely different podcast, certain, maybe even a book, maybe, maybe James Venom's next book. <laughs> um, but no, this is. <laughs> This is great. I really appreciate it, James. Um, I know our uh, audience is going to love this. Well, James and everyone, I really appreciate your time today. I think that uh, um, is about all the time we have. James, how can everybody get a hold of you or um, check out your book? How, how can we um, find yeah. your 
Uh, it's on Amazon, uh, and the the audio book will be here in a few months. But uh, the paperback and hardcover and Kindle edition are all on Amazon. You can just go to jamesbenham.com. Uh, you can check out the company at jbknowledge.com, and uh, you can check out the book Be Your Own VC. Uh, that's that's on Amazon. You can check it out there. You can also email me james at jbknowledge.com, and I'll be happy to chat with you. And thanks for having me on, Brady. I appreciate it. Absolutely. This is fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here today. Make sure to like and subscribe and share. And until next time, thanks for joining us here at Brady's.